David, welcome to the first video version of Software Daily. I'm so honored. I feel like very special right now. Well, it's much deserved. You are the host of one of my favorite podcasts, probably the most popular or second or third most popular business podcast. (laughs) We're working on it. We're working on it. Right. So acquired, if people haven't heard it. And we are in the midst of emerging from coronavirus hibernation. And I thought you would be a great first guest for the video podcast. Well, thank you. I'm so honored. I'm so excited. Like, we're back. We're back. (laughs) It's somehow. Somehow. In person. It just feels, we were talking before we started, Ben and I, my co-host on Acquired, Ben and I, we haven't done a in-person recording in over 15 months. Gotta miss it. This is great. I've had to shake off a lot of cobwebs not just for podcasting, but literally for in-person interaction, like going to dinner, I almost had to like force it. There was an atrophy that I had to overcome, like ordering in a restaurant and like hanging out with people. It's or like playing basketball, like all these things, you know, it's, there's a rebirth that's happening. Totally. You know, what's been hard for me in the last couple of weeks, it's been awesome is consuming alcohol again, (laughs) because I'm going out, you know, I'm seeing people almost every day now, which is wonderful. Most of these interactions involve having a beer, <laughs> having a glass of wine. I'm just not used to it. Like, I'm wrecked by the end oh, of the man. day. Yeah, uh, I'm glad we're doing this in the morning. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's a bacchanalia. So, we should go ahead and get into it. I was listening to your recent episode with Brad Stone, the Amazon Unbound author, who is maybe the best modern business writer? I think he's up there. I would put him right up there with a different style than like Michael Lewis. So he's much more, you know, company specific focus, but like Walter Isaacson, right. you know, Brad is just, he's wonderful. Yeah. The ability he has to investigate that company that is pretty much impenetrable is really amazing. And so the one thing that stood out to me, especially in relation to the episodes you've been doing about Berkshire Hathaway, and I, I read Snowball not too long ago. So but, great. Yeah, it's an, an, another great one, is the idea of the fully integrated conglomerate versus the disparate conglomerate. So if you look at Amazon, you have basically a conglomerate that has few boundaries between the different businesses that are under its brand. And famously, Brad in Amazon Unbound talks about how Bezos, you know, has been saying in recent years to mature businesses with businesses within Amazon, what are you doing to help these emerging growth businesses within Amazon? It's all integrated. Right. Which is in stark contrast to the Berkshire Hathaway model, right? Do you have any perspective on which is superior? (laughs) I do. Actually, I do. And you're referencing (laughs) Ben jokes that are most we're very self-indulgent on Acquired. We tend to do like three-hour episodes. We've now done three, the third is about to come out, the three, three-hour-plus three episodes on Berkshire Hathaway, just telling the whole story. And this third episode hasn't come out yet, but we kind of end it with like Warren and Berkshire, he's the GOAT. Like he's the greatest investor of all time, almost without a doubt. However, his whole style and the approach and everything that Berkshire Hathaway has become, you got to remember Warren was born in 1930. It was shaped by his experience growing up and America. He always talks about never betting against America. The whole philosophy behind Berkshire Hathaway is that the future is mostly going to look like the present. 
you know, yes, there was lots of change in America between 1930 to 1950 to 1970 to 1990. But probably on the whole of those, what, 60 years, there's less absolute change in the world than there's been in the past one year, you know? And so I think the way Berkshire is this decentralized conglomerate with all these different businesses that are wholly independent. You know, Warren famously has this line that he wants businesses that can be run by a ham sandwich, like they're just on autopilot, <laughs> you know, from reading the snowball. And that's just not the way the world works today. So my view, although I have so much respect for Warren and Berkshire, I'm a shareholder. I'm happy to be a shareholder. I just think Amazon's approach is the, in a world where there is so much more change that is happening every day and it's accelerating, you can't run a business like a ham sandwich. <laughs> and the Amazon approach is far superior in today's environment, I think. And I mean, can they still be successful looking for the ham sandwich kind of businesses? I mean, because it, like, I guess the modern equivalent of that is like, What's that private equity firm in Austin? Silver Silver Lake or something? Or, yeah. or what What are they called? Not Silver Lake. Oh, yeah. The guy. Vista. Vista. Yeah. Vista. I mean, that's the technology equivalent, right? Yeah. You know what? You can do that for sure. I don't think so, though. Like businesses like take Coca-Cola, right? The fame, one of the famous Berkshire Hathaway investments. When Warren invested in Coke. It was right after the new Coke disaster. And this was in the late 80s. I think Berkshire made a 10x return on their investment in the first 10 years. But then the whole world realized like, oh, it's Coke. It's a really great defensible business. It's a brand. People are going to keep drinking it. People are going to keep drinking Diet Coke, especially. And it got fairly valued. And so over the next 25 years that Berkshire held onto all of their shares of Coke to this day, they've only returned three and a half X from the last 25 year period. So it's 10 X in the first 10 years and then three and a half X over 25 years. And yeah, like those types of businesses get fairly valued and then they, you know, you're not going to make outsized returns on them, but you asked, can Berkshire continue their success investing in ham sandwich businesses? No, I don't think so. However, Berkshire, and it was not Warren's idea. It came from likely Ted Wechsler, one of the two investment deputies who report to him. Berkshire has made one of the greatest investments of all time in the past four years, five years, right up there with the Nasper's investment in Tencent, right up there with SoftBank's investment in Alibaba. The 2016 Berkshire investment in Apple has returned $89 billion okay. in gains. Didn't know that one. <laughs> to Berkshire. We did the math on Acquired. That single investment in 2016 has returned as much or more dollars than the entire rest of Warren's career. <laughs> wow. Have they talked about the reasoning behind that? Like, because I know they placed a really big bet at yeah. some point. And I was, I, when I saw that, I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, right. And everybody was like, oh, Apple interest, you know, whatever. So it didn't come from Warren. So starting in 20, oh gosh. Was it 14, 15, maybe? He first hired, no, it was earlier than that. He first hired Todd Coombs as a deputy investment manager and then Ted Wessler. And they have very different styles than Warren, Ted especially. And Ted got interested in Apple. We don't know if it was Ted or, or Todd. I believe it was Ted. Got interested in Apple around 2016. 
he had discretion to make up to a billion dollar bet on his own. So he put a billion dollars into Apple in 2016. And then deploy more capital, he had to get Warren on board. And so the rationale that convinced Warren was, and that Warren talks about is Apple is like a consumer brand. It's more like Coke than it is like a technology company. You know, the brand loyalty is so high. It's a consumer products company. I don't know, right? I mean, like, (laughs) sure, Apple has a lot of brand loyalty, but I don't think that's why people keep buying iPhones. I think it's because iMessage lock-in. I think it's because of their technology is so far ahead, you know, all this other stuff. So yeah, we'll see. (laughs) It is. I mean, even as an Android user, like I'm an Android guy, but I actually can recognize like there's no Android watch that's as good as, as the Apple watch. There's no product with the consumer appeal of AirPods, even though I don't personally see AirPods to me is a crazy phenomenon. It's like, I don't know if you've used other Bluetooth headsets, but AirPods is no better than than like a $25 Bluetooth headset. It's very strange. It's one of these phenomenons where basically nobody was buying Bluetooth headsets relative to how good a Bluetooth headset is in your life. And so Apple just basically said, we're going to make a Bluetooth headset and we're going to market it in a way that people will buy it. Like the technology was already there. They don't, I mean, maybe I'm the crazy one here, but- No, like, I don't think you are. But I do think that that actually does illustrate the- ecosystem lock-in that Apple has with AirPods, if you use all Apple devices, they seamlessly switch. But so like I've done so many times now, I'm listening to a podcast on my phone, I get home, I'm out for a run or whatever, I open up my iPad, I start watching a YouTube video and it just seamlessly pops over. Right. And probably it's easy to underestimate how good that frictionlessness is. But anyway, we'll leave that to the John Gruber (laughs) crowd. We'll leave that to, yeah, to the talk show to talk about. Yeah. And I guess it doesn't matter that Charlie Munger doesn't understand Bitcoin. (laughs) No, I mean, for my personal portfolio, you know, I view Berkshire as just a very different part of my portfolio. Right. Tech stocks, angel investing, crypto. You know, I view it as like, this is, I'm going to get nice appreciation in this. Not going to do anything too dumb. I'm not going to lose capital. It's, I view it as my quote unquote safety portfolio. And like, yeah, I invest in, in crypto. Like, I, I don't want Charlie invested in crypto for me. I, like, I can do that. You've been studying investing for a lot longer than I have. I'm quite sure of that. Well, you've probably gotten quite the education in six, seven years you've been doing this now? Yeah, six years. But I mean, just to show you my level of financial responsibility, I had almost no money when I started this. So like, I have not invested prudently. <laughs> but, you know, as a, as a prudent investor, as somebody who's a student of the markets, how do you evaluate? crypto is it a this time is different type of asset like a new type of asset is it game changing is the jury still out what's your perspective yeah yeah well that's the the trillion dollar question okay so here's how i think about it and a lot of this is real time for me and informed by the berkshire series we did you know i unveiled in episode three of the berkshire series that's coming out soon i've just been noodling the whole time i mean we spent weeks months studying this studying berkshire Warren's mindset that I was talking about with this never bet against America, you know, what was the world looking like and going to look like during the prime of his career? I think he's totally right in the concept of if you can figure out a trend that is almost unassailably going to continue for decades into the future, you can invest behind that trend with a lot of confidence and ignore any ups and downs along the way. And he did that 
amazingly well with the rise of American business in the 20th century. To me, it just hit me towards the end of Berkshire research that it's blindingly obvious to me that that same trend exists now, but instead of never betting against America, it should be never bet against the internet. And, you know, same day, it feels today like the internet is mature. The internet is like 20 years old, you know, and the rate of growth and change and everything happening is accelerating and it's globalizing. And crypto to me feels like a core part of that. All parts of crypto, Bitcoin, the Ethereum ecosystem and everything going on there, DeFi, you know, NFTs. And so, so yeah, my view is like, look, I have no idea what's going to happen <laughs> tomorrow, a year from now, whatever. But like when I zoom out, and we should say too, this is not investment advice. Right. This is entertainment purposes right. only. Right. We're just jamming about what, what we do. For me, when I zoom out, it just, it's very hard for me to imagine 5, 10, 20, 50 years from now where digital money, decentralized, permissionless, you know, finance and business is, is not a thing on the internet. So that's how I think about it. How are you thinking about it? Couldn't have said it better myself. I don't know the governmental direction. Like, you know, if you get, you know, a state-sponsored cryptocurrency from the United States, what happens? I think, doesn't China already have one? They're working on one. I don't think it's live yet. Or it's like centralized, right? It's yeah. like a it's a digital dish. digital one, yeah. Right. Which is I that's like no different than normal currency today. That's right? what I like I haven't studied it enough, but that's that's my thinking, right? Like it's still <laughs> yeah, it's still fiat they can still, currency. Make, they can still yeah. print more of it. I don't yeah. think that's that's anything new. Yeah, I think it's gigantic and I don't think it's tulips. I think there are tulips, you know, in the garden. But yes. oh a hundred percent that is the case. <laughs> but <laughs> But like you look at, do you know the story of Uniswap? You should do an acquired episode on Uniswap. Oh, yeah. yeah I've no. been diving deep on Uniswap. We got to do Ethereum first. So we did Bitcoin in uh, January. Okay. Next up in the crypto series is Ethereum. And then I think the natural one after that is Uniswap. Or MakerDAO. MakerDAO, or MakerDAO might, be, might yeah. be the next one. But yeah, Uniswap or so Coinbase. Cool. Maybe Coinbase. Or Coinbase too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, but Uniswap is like, that's a crazy story. Because I think the craziest part of that is just how, like even Ethereum was kind of the work of several people, right? Uh, Several people brought that to market. But Uniswap really feels more like the genesis of just one guy who... Yeah, it was Hayden, right? Hayden, yeah. Yeah, Hayden Adams. The story as I understand it, I haven't dove into the research yet fully, is he was laid off, right? Or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. And he wanted to get into crypto, but he was like, oh, I kind of missed it. And I think he had a friend who was like... Dude, if you if you spend like two months on this, you're going to be a world expert. His friend was named Carl Flursch. Carl Flursch was one of the first 10 guests on my podcast. Amazing. So Carl Flursch, like, okay, so I did shows when Ethereum was doing its presale. And I, I didn't no invest. Way. I didn't invest in it. I covered Ethereum during the Ethereum presale. And I was like, who are these people? Like, <laughs> these are the weirdest people I've ever met. Oh my you God. Know? Like, wow. like, I mean, absolutely no offense. Like I, you know, I'm very, you know, endeared towards, you know, weird- Weird people. Weird, weird, weird nerdy people. Like we grew up playing some magic. Like yeah. Magic the Gathering is like exactly like the kind of people that, that attracts the Ethereum people. But like, I remember I, in, I interviewed like the creator of MetaMask. I interviewed- oh. I interviewed Wow. Carl, Carl, like he was telling me what Ethereum enables and he was like, yeah, we're going to have basically like Uber, but it's going to be decentralized. And that's what Ethereum enables is where you're like, I don't know, man, that sounds crazy. <laughs> I, was like, I don't know about this. 
Oh, so great. <laughs> yeah, it's like Ethereum's 30 cents, you know, like, okay, I don't know how to do this wallet thing. I'm just going to pass on this. I've got podcasts to record, you know. I got money to make. I got money. I got ads to sell. So great. Did you eventually figure it out and not really. It took oh. me until 2017, 2018. And even then, I wasn't. Oh, that's still early enough. Like, that's uh, great. I didn't, I mean, I didn't buy that much in 2017, 2018, you know? I think, you know, look, again, not investment advice. I think in the long run, like, just even in small amounts, like small amounts in your portfolio, small percentages, just participate in this stuff now. Like, it's, yeah. it's things like the base layers, you know, Bitcoin likely, Ethereum almost certainly. Yeah, there are Ethereum killers out there or whatnot. And like, but there are enough network effects here. I think it's going to be fine. You're just going to participate in a massive, yeah. you know, it's the it's the Warren Buffett thing. Don't bet against America. Don't bet against the internet. Like, yeah. even if you're in a small position today, you're you're going to be great. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And so you, you've been looking into DeFi a lot? Yeah. Well, okay. So here's the other thing about crypto that I just think is so fascinating. You and I both do a lot of angel investing, which is great. We meet great founders through our pods and, you know, we get access to invest in their companies and their folks are kind enough to let us do that. The amazing thing about crypto that I don't think enough people appreciate yet, it's completely permissionless. Anybody, anybody listening to this can go invest in Uniswap. And you don't need special access. You don't need to know anybody. You don't need to be friends with Hayden. Like, you can go do your own research and you can go buy governance tokens. And then you can participate in the governance of this thing. That is just like an incredible step change versus any financial asset. Actually, even the crypto VCs, I have a crypto VC friend who I met a few days ago, and he was telling me about a deal he did recently. There's no paperwork in the deal. Like they do the deal through a smart contract. Amazing. Like millions of dollars yeah. as a VC investment through a smart contract. I was like, I, I had no idea this was like even VC, even crypto VC is how yeah. it works. Well, a slightly different situation, but there's one of the original set of sort of early crypto dedicated focused funds and firms is a firm called Paradigm. Great folks. The two co-founders are Fred Archimu, who's the co-founder of Coinbase, and Matt Huang, who is a partner at Sequoia. They were going along. I, I can't remember how big their first fund was. Well, let's say it was like 300 million or something like that, USD. And famously in, when was the, was it 2018 or 2019 it was 2019 when march 2019 i think when bitcoin crashed down to like thirty eight hundred dollars a bitcoin they called the entire fund <laughs> and put you know whatever capital they had oh put god. to work oh my god they called the entire fund and put it all into into BTC. oh my god <laughs> imagine a traditional venture firm doing that <laughs> but they did that and you can do that in crypto and that was a good move. Is running a crypto VC firm more like running a hedge fund? I think so. Not that I know at all from experience, but if you look at a lot of the folks that are doing it now, a lot of them come from hedge fund type backgrounds. It's this weird mix of like early stage venture with hedge fund like dynamics. Like active you, portfolio yeah, management. Yeah, active portfolio management. And like you would theoretically want a bunch of technical analysts on yeah. like just looking for like you would want... I mean, the best way to do it, I guess, is Alameda Research, right? That's oh, I actually don't know them. You haven't heard of Alameda Research? No. Do you know? Have you heard of Sam Bankman-Fried? The name sounds familiar, but no, I'm. Oh, I'm so he's like my he's like 29 years old and he's made 10 billion. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, yeah, he's like a wonderkind in crypto. Yeah, he's made he made through crypto. So he he like I think he studied physics at MIT, worked at Jane Street, 
and then went from Jane Street to start this thing called FTX. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I know FTX. Okay. Yeah. So I just didn't know he was the guy. Yeah, okay. so he started cool. FTX. Wow. And then he st- which is like an exchange. Yeah. And I think they just bought an arena somewhere. <laughs> I think there's an FTX arena, a basketball yeah. arena. Oh my gosh. Wow. And but this is another acquired episode. And in Alameda Research, and they're one of like the top investment firms. Uh, wow. Crypto VC firms. Man, so, yeah. I'm betraying my ignorance. But like this, you know, back to the Berkshire comparison, this is the thing. Like the scale at which this stuff is happening now makes Berkshire look quaint. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, Warren's whole thing was he wanted to be a millionaire by age 35 and he made it by age, you know, 32. And so that was amazing. Right. Yeah. Now we're talking about what a 29 year old who's a, worth 10 billion. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. And if you don't mind sharing, like directionally, like what percentage of your portfolio do you put into crypto? Yeah, yeah. I'm not quite there yet, but like my theory and philosophy is I want to, and again, this is not investment advice. I do not recommend most people do this, but in terms of, so I have, you know, my sort of like, I call it the safety portfolio and that's like Berkshire stuff and like real estate, like, you know, the my family is going to be fine no matter what happens. And the rest of my portfolio, I take the long-term view on. So for that rest of the portfolio, I'm aiming right now to be roughly a third, a third, a third allocated to U.S. or Western traditional tech companies, both big and small, a third to crypto, and a third to Chinese, China tech companies. No cash? Well, that's in the safety oh, portfolio. Okay. Got it, yeah. got it. This is in the like... You know, the portion of my portfolio that is like, this is all about long-term capital appreciation. Got it. And so in the crypto bucket, you still have like the question of how much do you put into aggressive stuff and how much you you put into Ethereum and Bitcoin. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So I've only just recently started transitioning away from pure, just, I was for years just BTC and, and ETH. And only just started investing in, in other stuff in that bucket. So, so far, Uniswap, Compound, and Solana, which we've got some great folks oh, in the acquired community. I don't know if you know, but like Sam Bankman fried is like one of the people who created Solana. I believe he created, he co-created Solana or ah. his, or his, his organization co-created it or something or sponsored it or they're heavily involved in Solana. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We are overdue on acquired for going deep into the whole rest of the crypto world. I mean, unfortunately, or fortunately, the domain that I think both of us are kind of pursuing, like the business of software and technology is is expanding at too much of a fractal rate that it's getting away from us. It's so true. <laughs> but it's great. Like, man, like the rising tide is just going to lift everybody. I don't know if you've seen, like, there have been so many awesome creators that have come into the business of tech space. For sure. And it's just so great. We all get to, like, collaborate. For like, sure. Yeah, like we've done a bunch of stuff with Packy McCormick, who does Not Boring, and Mario Gabrielli, who writes The Generalist, Lillian Lee, who writes Chinese Characteristics. Did she come on your show? Yeah, we did an LP episode oh, with her. Oh, nice. She's great. Have you had her on the pod? I have not. I'd like to, though. Uh, if you want an introduction. Yeah. She's wonderful. Yeah, I assume you've been. Oh, yeah. I mean, with lots uh, of well, you and I both know Cortland, Indie yep. Hackers. Cortland's awesome. Who else? It's escaping me right now. I mean, I've had podcasters and newsletter people. I, I don't know why names are escaping me right now. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. Like the amount of content relative to where it was six years ago when we started. Like I used to hit inbox zero on my podcasts all the time. I and mean, granted, I was listening to podcasts way too much. 
but I still hit inbox zero. Now it's impossible. Now scrolling my podcast app, and it's it's amazing that we like I sh- you know we should have anticipated this. Like, but you know I can scroll my podcast like a Twitter feed now. Yeah. It's just too much content. But I think it's great though for creators because we can all have our niches. Yeah, and absolutely. like it's big enough. Yeah, it's we. I sort of got this philosophy from we've done a bunch of stuff with sort of the OOG of business and tech podcast. Calicanus, Cal right? Oh, yeah. yes, yes. He's so yes, great. Yes. You know, and he sort of takes this approach. He's like, he he kind of took us under his wing and he's like, look, the young guns are coming up. Great. Like, let's do stuff together. And yeah, it's great. And he's back on top. And now he's back. We got to talk about all in. Yeah. How good is it? It's the best. It's so good. Why is it the best? Okay. So you had this in the prep questions. I think there are a few things I would say. A, just like the chemistry between the four besties is like, like that's, that's the magic, you know, like having the different political viewpoints. Who would have thought that a tech show that is mostly about politics <laughs> would be interesting, let alone the number one pod out there? Chemistry is great. They have played so well this, you know, because they all have other business activities and they don't need to monetize it. They've played that up so well and just made it all about the community the open sourcing it to the fans. What a brilliant, brilliant move. Like the value that they get out of their reach and influence versus what they've given up in terms of selling advertising is immense. Well, it's it's like it's the A16Z model effectively, right? We've got a great media channel and we monetize it through venture capital. Exactly, exactly. And all of them in different ways. And then I would say the last, the last thing that I think that they nail relative to the traditional media landscape and, and even relative to, I think they're ahead of all other pods, us included, you know, you and me right now, they break the fourth wall. Like, it's not even that they break oh, the sure. fourth wall. There is no fourth wall. For sure. They act like the audience is right there with them. For sure. And it's so impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think? Yeah. I mean... There's certainly an element of like, okay, one thing I think is is pretty interesting is, so they came out during COVID, right? And COVID was this time where like, some people have the sense that surely somebody out there knows what's going on here. Like, surely this is a, like, this is a conspiracy. Like ever, this was planned. Like the smartest people in the room knew what was going on. They knew what was going to happen. And here you have like several billionaires. Yeah. Like sitting around the table saying they don't know what's going on. Right. Like David Sachs has deep ties to Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel is probably one of the most informed people in the world. Like, co-founder of Palantir, if somebody who's basically like good friends with the co-founder of Palantir and he doesn't know what's going on, like he can't tell you anything more than, you know, not much more than than what you can read on Twitter, then it's kind of groundbreaking in the sense that it indicates that nobody knows what's going on. Yeah, so true. And I hadn't thought about this till now, but they like, I don't think all four of them are billionaires, but like certainly at least one of them is. Yes. <laughs> Probably multiple and, and they're all well above you and me. Yes. Let's put it that way. But I don't know anything else, any other piece of media content thing that has humanized billionaires right. so much right. <laughs> as the All In podcast. Like, For sure. Yeah. You know, it especially in an era where 
every increasing day, it feels like, you know, the billionaires versus the rest of us. It's like they switch sides. It's amazing. Any perspective on the SPAC phenomenon? Oh, man. Nothing unique. Ben, my co-host, has been actively trading SPACs since the phenomenon started. No unique perspective. The only thing is, like, I graduated from college in 2007 and went and did investment banking on Wall Street right out of college. And in 2007, that, you know, summer of 2007, uh, before in the fall before the crash of 2008, when the market was at its peak, there were a lot of SPACs <laughs> on the market at that hmm. point in time. And so when everything started heating up in SPAC land again, I was like, well, I've seen this movie before. Hmm. I don't know. It could be different this time, but I don't have enough of a view. To, I'm just going to stay out of it. That's, that's my view. Hmm. Do you have any macroeconomic perspective on like the, you know... Crash, you know, is crash incoming or? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, did you get spooked a few weeks? What was it? What was it? Three weeks ago? When did the markets crash? Yeah. Well, there was this weird like double hilltop thing, right? Where, where like the the growth growth public equity markets crashed. Was it three weeks, a month ago or so? Tech stocks and crypto stayed high. And then like two weeks later, growth stocks had recovered a bit. And then we had the crypto crash, whatever that was, two weeks or so ago. And now that's recovering. I don't know. I just view it all as noise. Yeah. But I have my portfolio set up that way very intentionally, where I'm like, everything that I have allocated to the, those types of assets is like, I don't need to touch that for mm-hmm. 5, 10, 20 years. Mm-hmm. So as long as I think that, like, like Zoom is a great example. When the pandemic hit, I was like, okay, the, like I miss Zoom in the IPO. And this is, <laughs> if there ever were a time I'd been wanting to buy, and yes, the price is high, but I just got to get in. And then Zoom hit $600 a share, and people were selling. And, you know, yeah, it was tempting, but I was like, you know, I don't know. Do I think, like, that there is a reasonable possibility? Can I see a future where in five years, in 10 years, Zoom is a $6,000 stock, not a $600 stock? Yeah, I think I can. So, like, yeah, then Zoom went back down into the 200s, and that sucked. But I don't know. I didn't really care. <laughs> as long as my faith wasn't shaken in that long-term future, and it hasn't been. So, yeah, I don't know. What are you doing? I wish I had the portfolio architecture that you do with this. I'm a little bit more like playing it as I go along. <laughs> I'm still just like, I mean, I, you know, I've told you a little bit about this but like i i still want to start a company i want that yeah. that to be my my route to victory yeah. and, and then like i think of like investing as as just sort of a learning experience and kind of a i don't know i i don't pay as much attention to it as as i probably should but I, you know i i just sort of like throw some money into like you know private deals when i can get into private deals i throw like 50 percent of my portfolio into crypto and 50 percent into stocks actually no it's like probably 40 percent crypto 30% equities, and then 30% cash, actually. I, I just hold a lot of that cash. That feels like a decent allocation. Yeah. The other thing that's, you know, it's just, I know we keep harping on this, but it's so freaking cool that, like, you don't need any permission to do that. Yeah. You don't need a wealth manager yeah. to do that. Totally. Like, the gatekeepers are dead. Right, right, know? right. So cool. Should we talk about sure, company? Sure. Whatever, yeah. Yeah. Sure, Yeah. Dude, I mean, well, yeah, I haven't talked about it that much, but yeah, I'm making, I'm making a company, making a company. This um, is huge news. I'm uh-huh. so excited for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's gonna, it's gonna be cool. It's, I shouldn't say too much about it, but it's around gaming. It's Great. a game, gaming-based company. Grew up a gamer. Apparently, you did too. I definitely did. So yeah, we'll see, we'll see more about that in the, the months to come. 
tell us about the thought process, right? So you, you've started companies before. Mm-hmm. You started at Amazon, your career at Amazon, right? Well, I didn't start my career at Amazon. I started my career at a trading place, actually. That was the first. Well, I did internships, and then I then I, when I graduated, I went to a trading place. I worked there for five months. Also, don't say you don't know. You're not financially literate. Like you've, you've been a professional investor. Yeah, I don't think any of my code made it into production when I was working at that place. I was an engineer, and I don't think any of my code made ah, it into production. Don't sell yourself short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then was an engineer at a few other places. And then, yeah, since starting the podcast, started some companies that didn't work. And now I think I finally have enough battle scars. I think I know what to do. So it's under some direction. I love it. I love it. What was like the major thing that you felt like we won't talk about the idea and maybe that was the thing you felt that you just found the right idea finally but what was the big emotional hurdle where you're like all right i'm ready to i'm ready to fight this fight i mean the pandemic was really hard for me the like last summer the last company i started or i didn't start a company around but i I built a product a collaboration product called find collabs that really just was not getting any traction i was trying all these different things i couldn't make it work and eventually I stopped working on it and I started focusing more on the podcast. I was like, okay, look, I'm just going to focus on the podcast. Maybe I'm going to do investing. Maybe I'm going to be a full-time investor. I talked to you a lot about that. And, and I was like, don't be a full-time investor. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, cause you were kind of going through something similar. You were yeah, kind of totally. like evaluating it similarly. We can talk about the venture market, but I just, I did a whole lot of soul searching basically over the last year. And then I did, I did on deck recently, you know, on deck. Oh yeah. Cool. How was yeah. the experience? It was actually great. Like, actually, during the middle of it, like, I was not having a great time because I was surrounded by a lot of people who seemed like they knew what they were doing or they had, like, a lot of people. Onyx, great. Like, there was a bunch of people who had sold their companies recently and they're like, what am I going to do next? And they've got some great ideas for new companies they're going to start. There's some people with, like, they already had their great idea and they're just at OnDeck sort of, like, looking for support, looking for fundraising, looking for a co-founder. And I was just basically like, yeah, I'm a podcaster. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, man. Uh, It feels like the... When you show up at college as a freshman, yeah. you're like, all these people are so impressive. Like, what <laughs> yeah. am I doing here? Right. How did I get in? <laughs> exactly. That's actually how I felt at the beginning of college. But then one night I had come home from one, like they put together all these social events during on deck. And I came home from a social event. I had had, you know, a number of interesting conversations with people. And I just had like ideas bouncing around in my head. And I, you know, I got home from, from this event and I'm like, I think I've got something. And I just started, you know, opened up a Word document and started typing. And I was like, okay, this kind of makes sense. And I went to sleep, woke up the next morning. I'm like, I think I got a little more ideas. And gradually, like I'm making more and more progress. You know, on deck ended. I still didn't really have the idea fleshed out. But I, you know, I got home to San Francisco. I'm still thinking about this. And then, you know, one day I, I open up Google Slides and I start making a pitch deck. And I'm like, okay, uh, great. I got it. I know what to do. And so, like, I think there's really something to on deck for yeah. for this kind of person who feels a little bit lost. Feels it's you like you're not at the Y Combinator stage where you you know what you're doing. You know you want to start something. You know you want to do something entrepreneurial, but you need just some ambient reinforcement. You need to put yourself in the right environment. You need to put yourself among the right people. And there's really something to that. This is so cool because yes, obviously, yeah, you articulated so well the need for something like this. YC tried to do it. They've tried to do it in several iterations. I remember they had the YC Fellowship. Do you remember that? No. It was basically like on deck. But the problem was, it's kind of like, this isn't quite the Hamilton Helmer counter positioning thing, but the golden goose at YC is YC. <laughs> and I would imagine, I'm just projecting from the outside, 
it was really hard to allocate the proper amount of resources to making something like on deck great when like yc is generating billions of dollars of value for you innovators dilemma yeah innovators dilemma (laughs) right exactly and it's just so cool yeah that like on deck exists now and there are probably other folks so what are the terms of on deck how does it work no terms like you pay 2400 bucks like you just go oh cool so they don't it's not like they get equity in whatever you start or no it's not a venture thing like which is cool like i mean Eric Torenberg started it at around the same time he started his venture firm, Village Global. Yep. So he's like, they have a big venture firm. So I'm sure if you have a great idea, you can you can communicate with them. But it's, they're decoupled. That's cool. So then, yeah, you don't have the like real or imagined, you know, like, oh, I might, I think I'm going to do something great. Do I want to give up my equity to do that's like, feels like a no They want to be like college. They want to be the college of the internet. They want to be the Stanford of the internet. And so that's why they've launched all these programs like On Deck for Podcasters, On Deck for Marketers, On Deck for Low-Code People, On Deck for Entrepreneurs, On Deck for Investors. It's a compelling business. I think they they just raised from Founders Fund at a $250 million valuation. I think it was $250 million valuation. And I didn't get it until I attended it. And then I was like, oh, my God, this is a really capital efficient, really powerful business. Yeah. I know Packy at Not Boring did it before starting Not Boring. And like, obviously, great people. Right. Yeah. Okay, so you said when you got back here, you opened up Google Slides, you made the pitch deck. That's a different approach than you did, I know, with your previous products that you tried building. Yes, yes. I mean, this one, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the responsible approach of bringing on investors and like I'm going to try to find a co-founder or founding engineer and instead of just sort of like throwing a product together like with too much emphasis on my own work. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Like we're, you know, on the one hand, we're, we're like totally lucky. I mean, amazingly fortunate and lucky, you know, you with Software Daily and, and us with Acquired that like we have a business we've built that can fund things. But yeah, it's such a different approach. Like, you know, you, you certainly could do that again, right? And fund development, you know, internally just with through Software Daily. You've got this amazing community. But yeah, like there is, I've found this in some of the things that I've been doing on my own and you know in the last year and i'm so grateful for my partner ben at acquired when it's just you like it's you don't have that like forced accountability you know that's right yeah and you know just i don't know doing this business like large i mean i I started the podcast with another guy he left because he wanted to become a software engineer like he was actually very motivated by doing the podcast like it worked too well right so he (laughs) He left to become a software literally (laughs) he took it literally he's like there's a really interesting you know thing we're exploring here i think i'm just going to become an engineer okay well there goes that and then but erica's joined me erica helps me with the podcast she's invaluable she doesn't produce content but she runs everything behind the scenes but yeah for the technology products i've built it's mostly i've just just done it myself and hired contractors. This is just such a terrible approach. And I, I've tried it like two or three times and it's just dumb. I kept making the same mistake. Like, I, don't know. <laughs> I think there probably are some people that are perfectly happy and capable of executing on big ambitious things just like completely on their own. Absolutely. I've learned I'm not one of those people. <laughs> Sounds like maybe not, not you either. Yeah. But the venture stuff, Ooh, should we jam on venture stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, this is a direction that both you and I, like, have sort of gradually migrated to. Well, I guess you you were full-on venture capitalist yeah. for a while. Yeah, a decade. Wow. <laughs> Professional venture capitalist. 
Yeah. So like, how did you, like, what's been your maturity process and like, how did you come to your current strategy? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a bunch of, let's talk about that. Then we can talk a jam on the current landscape. You know, on that, like I was super, super, super fortunate. I joined Madrona, which is the largest venture fund in Seattle. I was the first investor in Amazon. Uh, (laughs) We would always joke, we're still looking for that next. I don't think they're ever going to find it. (laughs) And that's totally fine. (laughs) You can't do better than Amazon. I joined Madrona when I was 24. So I got to, you know, I tell people when we talk about my journey in VC, I was like the literally the last person in the door on the old mentorship model in VC, the apprenticeship model. I came in as an associate. There were like five partners, five or six partners. You know, there was a CFO and a fund admin, you know, folks were wonderful people. They're still there. And then me, I was like the only junior person. So I showed up on day one and all the partners were like, okay, great. We're on all these boards of these companies are making these investments. We're going to divvy you up. So here are 15 boards that you're going to join as a, you know, observer alongside wow. a partner, you're going to come to all these board meetings. You're going to meet these CEOs. You're going to like learn the business. You're going to carry our bags, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. And that was just great. So I got to do that for a bunch of years, you know, do that process, like come up, like help the partners be successful, then transition to making my own investments, small ones at first, and then larger ones. And I went to business school and what I was in business school, I interned at Maritech which is still not super well known to this day, but they are like oh, yeah. the best oh, growth yeah. investors out there, right. like the best. Right. So I got to learn that side of the business. Yeah, I was just so lucky. All these people mentored me. And then then I left and started my own firm. I was like, oh, the natural thing. I'm going to go start my own firm. <laughs> and I just realized, you know, A, I realized really quickly that I thought I knew how to run a venture capital firm. <laughs> I realized it's very different running a venture capital firm than being an investor at a venture capital firm and making investments. They are almost two wholly separate jobs. And the most important thing when you're running a venture capital firm is raising the money. (laughs) And if you're aiming for any kind of traditional down-the-middle VC firm, we're a $55 million fund. That's a lot of capital to raise from nothing. You know, To go convince people to give you $55 million is hard for anybody at any time especially a new venture capital fund, it's not like you can build a product and show them a prototype. You literally can't do anything until you get the money. (laughs) You started in 2014, 2015? We started in 2017 and it took a year and a half to raise the money. And, you know, that was great experience, but that was a year and a half, no salary, like, no, just pounding the pavement. And we got great LPs. But anyway, while all that was going on, Ben and I had started Acquired back when I was at Madrona. What year did you start? 2015. We started 2015 too. Right. And you've seen, you know, what Acquired's become. Oh, yeah. I'm sure for you what Software Daily's become oh, is yeah. beyond our wildest oh, dreams. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I kind of felt at a certain point, like I checked all the boxes in professional VC. And meanwhile, this other thing that was right. a hobby was bigger than I ever imagined. Well, but, and VC got ridiculously competitive. Yeah. So, then this is the market. You know, the VC... When I joined, you know, and I think Madrona and Meritech both have done great at navigating this. Yeah. When I joined, VC was not a competitive industry. Like, <laughs> it was clubby. You could be really, frankly, lazy and still do great. It was metaphorically shooting fish in a barrel. There was way, way not enough capital yeah. for the opportunity of funding startups. And so you could be bad, just like straight up bad and make money. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the case anymore. And I kind of think, so I was thinking about this before the show. 
I'm curious what you, what you think participating in both sides of this world is the analogy. I think the venture business has become like the media business and both literally in terms of you got to have a following, but also in terms of the business, the industry structure, like, so, okay. So here's where I'm going with this in the media business. There are two strategies that work. Now you can either be essential must consume content you can be Disney and be like, you know, we own Marvel, we own Star Wars. Like, this is tentpole. You know, the way we compete with Netflix is like, you are gonna pay, especially if you're a parent, you're gonna pay us because you gotta have this content. So you can be Disney. I think that's you know Sequoia and Andreessen and the like. These they're Disney. The other way you can have essential content is to do what we're doing. Is just like own a niche. Like you are the best software engineering content on the internet. Period. You've been doing it for six years. You're unassailable, <laughs> uh, but you're an indie and we're the same at acquired, or you can be the platform that you can be the Netflix or you can be the YouTube where you're just like a horizontal platform and everybody's on the platform. I think it's the same adventure. You got Sequoia, you got Andreessen, they're the Disney. You've got the individual solo capitalists, the Alad Gills, the Lucky Grooms, the, you know. I won't put you and me in the category, but like we're working on it. <laughs> uh, and then you got the platforms, which is YC and maybe on deck too. Mm-hmm. Anything else that's not one of those strategies. Yeah. Pff, good luck. You yeah. know? Well, I mean, growth, tiger. Well, right. But not good luck. You're a commodity. You're a commodity business. Like right. in the media business, you're pumping out commodity content. In the venture investing business, I don't mean this to denigrate tiger at all. I think they're awesome. I think they realize what they are and they have an excellent strategy, but they are paying market prices. <laughs> like, you know, they are well, they're defining the market. They price. Are defining <laughs> the market price. I guess maybe that's the way to do it. Maybe they're taking like an Amazon approach. Yeah. That's kind of how I think about it. So all these firms that don't have the brand of a Disney and don't have the niche content of a super expert indie content producer, the media analogy and aren't YC, it's a tough place to be, I think. There was a dinner I was at like two or three years ago with a bunch of investors and entrepreneurs. And we're doing this thing where we're all just like posing questions to the table and voting on the questions. And I asked the question, who's going to be the more successful firm in 10 years, Sequoia or Andreessen? Oh. And the only people that raised their hands think for Andreessen was me and one other, one other person at a table of like 10 people. And I don't say that because I like dislike Sequoia or something. They're great. I just think they have taken the approach of we're going to be like soft-spoken. We're going to mm-hmm. be kind of like, you know, behind the scenes. And for a long time, their their slogan was the entrepreneurs behind the entrepreneurs. I think they finally ditched that. Yeah. I mean, I think they're slowly building out like more of a content direction. But I think like the challenge is like, I think the days of of winning through maybe I, I haven't seen behind the scenes as much, but like winning as being like the best consigliere or like, you know, I don't know. It's, I, yeah. th- I think like the whole media approach that Andreessen took was really prescient. And, and early they started in 2009 with this strategy and they've kept the strategy. They've kept doubling down on it year after year. Yeah. Because it's about being top of mind. I think if I, and by the way, I think if Sequoia like, you know, created a giant media arm, they would be like, I would have no take anymore. It would be neck and neck. Like, I just think they should, they should invest in media. It's sort of surprising to me that they haven't. Because it's anathema to, I mean, you did this, I did listen to the acquired, like yeah. that's, it's, it's anathema to their brand. Well, 
It's anathema to what they used to be, but I actually think one of the things I respect the most about Sequoia that started with Don Valentine, who founded it, and now Doug Leone, who runs it, you know, we did an episode with him, and he was pounding the table that Sequoia is about change. And it's about, I think Doug's line was his Doug Leone, you know, accent way away of him saying things is when something is working like a dream at Sequoia Capital, we throw it out the window because you got to be constantly changing and evolving. And, I, and they've done an amazing job of that. You know, the Scout Program, the Global Growth Fund. There's so many things they've done and added to Sequoia over the years. So I bet they do do something like this. I'm sure they're thinking about it. So which which firm would you have raised your hand for? I would raise both hands. <laughs> oh, you're such a diplomat. Uh, uh, d- no, you're no, such no. a diplomat. <laughs> Part of it's being diplomatic. I want, I want to have friends at both places. Okay, Dale Carnegie. But, <laughs> But come on, they're they're like the Disney and HBO. Like there's room for it. They each have must view content and they each put immense amount of resources into building and maintaining that and them literally with content. Sequoia with like, I mean, God, nobody works harder than those guys. Like they are, have managed to get into just about every single company that matters. And that is what, at the end of the day, what matters. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think both. Although, you're right, Andreessen perpetually surprises people on the upside and how much they've been able to do. And God, just look at crypto, right? Like, other VCs were laughing their heads off at them when they were raising a crypto fund. And (laughs) yeah, who's laughing now? Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, and... Okay, so let's talk about our part of the world. (laughs) Sure. What the other dynamic that I have found i didn't even anticipate but it has been so refreshing to me being a you know indie angel investor now versus being a professional vc it's a professional vc it is a blood sport like there's only one lead in each round and you are fighting to the death <laughs> with other vcs for any you know hot company to be the lead as an angel <laughs> nobody's going to turn down, you know, our 10K check. Yeah. You know, people might, but like, we're not trying to box anybody out. Yeah. It's just such a different dynamic. It is. Yeah, you can squeak in. You can squeak in, can get into seed rounds, A rounds, B rounds, D rounds. You know, it's just, it, for me, it's been so liberating, A, not to be a professional money manager with a strategy that I need to stick to because I told LPs that what the strategy was going to be. It was like, when I see something great that I want to do, I can do it. So you're, se- you're sector agnostic. Sector agnostic, stage agnostic, geography agnostic. Stage agnostic. Yeah, absolutely. So you put money into a Series B? Totally. Or a D or whatever. I don't see anything different than hmm. that versus... It's all just a spectrum That's to me true. from seed to public That's true, markets. actually, yeah. And through what we do, the people we have on our shows, the people we meet through our communities, we meet great Series C companies why would I not want to invest in that? And because I don't have to go, you know, if I were trying to go raise a professional venture fund and an LP evaluating me doing that, I'd have to say, well, okay, David, like, yeah, I get it. You worked at Meritech, but are you really going to go be able to lead Series C's? Are you going to be able to beat out Tiger? <laughs> are you going to be able to go beat out Sequoia's Global Growth Fund and Andreessen and like to win? But you and me, we don't have to beat anybody. Now, it used to be that the, and maybe it still is, that like the infrastructure for being a small VC was kind of pricey, right? Like, or complicated, pricey, 
Like you got lawyer. I actually don't know. I I haven't raised my own fund. I I mean, I've just signed some papers when when I've gotten into some deals. You know, like I, and I don't read them very much. Yeah. Like <laughs> I, they tell me to wire the money. I wire the money. Like it, I'm very unsophisticated. They're at this. like off in Ibiza. Like you know? yeah. So I mean, like I'm sure there's people listening to this right now who have thought about becoming like an angel, an angel, angel yeah. investor, like. Is the infrastructure there for it to be cheap? Like, do you use AngelList or something? Like, what, what do you do? Well, until now and, and through currently, I'm just personally angel investing. So, yeah, just like you, like, there is no infrastructure. It's just, you know, I get the signs and I get the Carta share certificates. And it's great. I don't have to do anything and glance over the docs, make sure everything. That's, but that's just because I've beaten into me as an associate for so many years in VC of like actually putting those docs together. So yeah, as an angel, there's no infrastructure, but there's so many ways to actually have small funds, small non-professional funds now through AngelList that like, I haven't done it personally, but you and I both probably have plenty of friends who have, and you know, I've considered and I'm considering it. Yeah. I think they make it really easy. You know, when I was running a professional fund that was the other piece of it was we had to manage the back office right like we had a outsourced fund administrator there are a few firms who are great that do most of the small venture funds but it was like yeah i was like a cfo and you know keeping track of everything doing the accounting like managing the firm that was doing that angel is just take care of all of that for small investors but i would say for people who are thinking about angel investing you know, again, not professional financial advice, but do it with money that you're very comfortable losing all of it. If you've never done this before, you know, view it like going to a casino. But the thing that I think is different now versus 10 years ago is access, right? Like the best super angels of 10 years ago, people who ended up becoming fund managers, you know, Mike Maples, that whole crew, Steve Anderson and Baseline, they had access, right? Or Chris Saka. They had access because they had worked at Google or they had worked somewhere and they knew people who were starting companies in a specific network and they pounded the pavement here on the streets in San Francisco <laughs> to meet people. Now, you know, roughly how many folks, how many subscribers do you have to Software Daily? I would guess 250,000. Right. And some large percentage of those folks are starting companies, right? Yeah. Right. You know, yeah, we're same order of magnitude it acquired like <laughs> i didn't work at google but we can have that access and so i think anybody who's thinking about doing this like ask yourself that question do i have access if i don't but i really want to do this what can i do to get access maybe that means go work at stripe or maybe that means do something else like there's so many more avenues now is stripe the next amazon oh it's a good question okay i i want your thoughts on this i think you're going to be closer to it than me i thought for Many months, years, I was like, oh, gosh, if there were one private company I could get into, I wish it was Stripe. It just seems so inevitable to me. But then I feel like something happened in the last few months where literally every single person in tech, every venture investor, every angel investor, everybody buying secondaries was like, I will buy Stripe at any price. <laughs> and that just made me like, oh, yeah, that made me pause for a minute. So I, I would never bet against Stripe. But I see people buying at these crazy valuations. And like Braintree is still as bigger, bigger. So I don't know. What do you think? So I felt this way. I did an interview with Patrick McKenzie, 
like, do you know who Patrick McKenzie is? Know the name, but I don't know. He's been writing about small internet businesses for many years. And he got an email from Patrick Collison one day who was like, come work at Stripe. And he's like, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't go to work for somebody. And Patrick Collison was able to convince him to come to Stripe. Uh, the Cortland Allen story. Well, I mean, the Cortland Allen story was an acquisition. Like, Cortland, oh. didn't, Cortland didn't have a way to, like, make money from indie hackers. Uh, Cortland was calling Patrick. me. <laughs> Cortland was calling me saying, how do I sell podcasts? Yeah, right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, here's what he you do. He brought you up. When we had him on for a special on Inquired, and he brought you up as, like, exactly that. He was calling you to say, how do I sell yeah. ads? <laughs> I was like, sell podcast ads. And he, was, he, just, he tr- started selling podcast ads. He's like, this sucks. And I was like, yeah, it does suck, but you get to make money. But then he, he went a much better direction, you know, just getting an email from Patrick Collison to get acquired. But so Patrick actually went to work at Stripe. Patrick McKenzie, yes, actually yeah. went to work at Stripe because he had he had started and sold, I believe, two different internet businesses. One okay. was like a bingo card creator company. One was an appointment reminder company. Oh, it was like indie hackers. Indie hackers before yeah. there was indie hackers, and he re- he wrote about it a ton. So he's like the perfect person to go work at Stripe. And he went to work at Stripe. I think his first project, or very quickly after he joined, was Stripe Atlas. Mm, and cool. so I did a show about Stripe Atlas. And that was what convinced me that Stripe was the next Amazon. You know, when I saw Stripe Atlas, I was like, okay, there's their AWS. Yeah, yeah. It's going to drive so much more company creation. Right. Yep. 100%. And, you know, they are unimpeachable in so many ways. Like, they have the best culture as far as a, a company of their size. They have the most charismatic founders. Far and away the best brand. Far and away the best brand. Fewest syllables of a brand. You know, Stuff even, matters. Even the, I mean, I, well, I guess Lyft. Lyft has one syllable. Wait, you did a rebrand now. here. You know, the I did a rebrand. Matters. Yes, yes. You want to cut as many syllables away as, as possible. And yeah, I mean, as I didn't know Braintree was bigger still. Now, the counter argument of Brain, Braintree is still like as big or bigger. I don't know exactly. The counter argument is it's like, the growth rates are completely mismatched. Like Braintree is growing, but it's all, you know, older legacy. All the new companies are on Stripe. And so if you believe the internet's going to grow and traditional payments on the internet are going to grow, like you should be long Stripe. I believe all that. The The only thing that gives me pause is just that like, I feel like there is not a single Stripe bear left on the planet. <laughs> I'm not a Stripe bear, right. but I just like, hmm, okay, what's going mm. on here? <laughs> Well, I mean, people have gotten better at valuing technology companies, right? That's true. That's true. And what's the current value, rumored valuation on Stripe? 95 billion. 95 billion. Yeah. And I think secondaries are happening above that. But like, could it get an order of magnitude bigger than that still? Sure. Yeah, sure. Sure. For sure. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Maybe I should just try and buy some secondaries. (laughs) Have you bought secondaries before? I have as part of venture firms. But not personally. Okay. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. That's something I'd like to be able to do. I think yeah. Carta X is going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's so many platforms. There's Equity. There's lots of out there. They always just seem a little right. sketchy to me. Right, right, right. But like the biggest reason being that it's going behind the backs of the companies. And so the companies find out, you know, if they don't like what's going on, they could just cancel the equity. It's within their rights to do so. Now, oh, they're okay. not going to do so because that could you imagine the PR crisis of like, you know, Stripe cancels employees equity. Like, right. you know, it's not Wait, worth so, the so is it like employees who are ready to sell, they go to what, what was Equidate? There's Equidate, there's Shares Posts. Right, right. There have been right. a bunch of them over right. the years. And by and large, so there's two ways to do secondaries right now. I think Cardex is, wants to make this better. But until now, there have been two ways. One is the above board company sponsored way. So this is like what SpaceX does. You do regular 
secondary tender offers essentially to shareholders, either the employee base or existing investors that could either be part of a round that the company's raising, or it could be, I think SpaceX just as regularly scheduled tender offers. That's great. To participate in those though, you need to be invited by the company into the tender offer process. So like, I guess I could email Patrick at stripe.com and be yeah. like, hey, I'd like to participate in your next tender offer, but I don't think he's going to get back to me. Then there's been the, that codates the share post and whatnot. And that's, that's the sketchy, quote unquote sketchy, but that's employees, mostly employees who decide they want to get liquidity going around the company's back and saying, and basically you, there are all sorts of different ways you can structure it, but creating legal agreements such that like, hey, you're not going to get custody of these shares right now. When there is an IPO or liquidity, whatever happens that I can trade these shares, you're going to get them at X price and we'll change money now and you can collateralize this with debt or all sorts of stuff. Anyway, that just seemed like a, not worth playing into me. But if there are going to be more open markets in the future that are company sanctioned and well, then yeah, that sounds very interesting. That That sounds like crypto to me. Yeah. I mean, there should be, right? Like, why wouldn't that? happen yeah i mean the the argument against it in the past has been companies don't want their shares private company trading around in lots of people's hands they don't know their shareholders retention for employees you don't want people to like people join they hit their first vesting cliff and then they sell but i just think a lot of that's either been blown up or gonna get blown up by crypto now like yeah if you're trying to attract employees to go work at a traditional company and you're going to pay them in equity, and that's going to be the upside. And they're evaluating going to work there for you or going and joining a DeFi project. <laughs> like, And the DeFi project, they're going to get paid in tokens. And that's going to be fully liquid from the instant it hits their wallet. <laughs> I just think you're going to have to attract employees through if you're going to compete with that market. Hmm. And I'm, seeing, I don't know, I'm curious what you're seeing on the pod or your friends or, or people you angel invest all the talent, especially the young talent, number one destination I see these days is going into crypto yeah. and DeFi. Oh, yeah. It's almost like a filter. Yeah. It's like a filter for how, how ambitious the people are. People are. The weirdest, most ambitious people are pursuing crypto. I mean, you know, there's some people doing infrastructure projects or, you know, they have some cool idea for consumer internet. But I would say, yeah, by and large, if they don't know what to do, yeah. they're, they certainly, you know, gravitate towards crypto. Yeah. Totally. We could jam about <laughs> venture stuff all day. <laughs> yeah. What's going on in software these days? Like, what yeah. should I be paying attention to? So you got a few things going on. Crypto, obviously. Data engineering. Do you know anything about data engineering? Well, I know it exists. <laughs> yeah. So data engineering, when I started the podcast, the predominant thing you had going on was a lot of companies were figuring out how to deploy Hadoop. Hadoop was this thing that came out of the MapReduce paper from Google. Yep. And yeah, Cloudera, Cloudera, yeah. Hortonworks, MapR all started from the Hadoop revolution. And the Hadoop revolution really consists of two things. It consists of Hadoop MapReduce and the Hadoop distributed file system, which today has matured. If you think about those two areas of storage and compute have matured into you have a very big set of companies doing interesting stuff, with compute and a bunch of companies doing interesting stuff on storage and then everything in between. You can think of Snowflake as a very like as a kind of a downstream, you know, result of HDFS. I mean, Snowflake is a data warehouse company. When I was starting the podcast, 
the predominant view, I think, was that the way that things were going to go was that people were going to store all their data in in HDFS, what is now known as a data lake. Yeah. And it's like this really cheap storage. And then you do interesting stuff with all your data that's stored in the cheap storage. You load it into, you either run Hadoop jobs or you have these stream processing systems like you have Spark, you have Flink, you have Apache Beam, these processing systems. Basically, you have your low-cost storage and you have your processing system. And what's happened, which is interesting, is that those things did happen. Like, you know, Spark is a huge business, obviously, with Databricks. Spark was kind of the winner in the next-generation data processing framework space. But you had the rise of the data warehouse, which was Mm -hmm. unexpected. And what's interesting about data warehouses is you basically throw all your data in the data warehouse. And it, it, I mean, I think what Snowflake does, I've never used Snowflake, but I think what what Snowflake does, and I think what Google BigQuery does, is it puts it into a tiered storage system. So so some of it is at slower slower access speed, some of it's at faster access speed, and then you can tier it into into memory, so it's like much faster. And so everybody is just using data warehouses because data warehouses take advantage of, they basically take care of all the lower level plumbing that you would want out of your data infrastructure. So instead of having to run like an HDFS and having to run like all this data infrastructure, you basically put everything into Snowflake. This is what made Snowflake such a popular company, I think. Like people were originally doing this with Amazon Redshift. Yeah, I was going to ask, like Redshift, this sounds like Redshift to me, but yeah. Yeah. So I mean, Redshift did that, but then, you know, Snowflake presaging kind of a, a whole generation of companies that are not Amazon Web Services, but provide you great infrastructure, said, we're going to build an entire company around what Amazon tried to build a single service around. Mm. And and that's what they've done. And l- there's going to be a whole generation of companies that use Snowflake as a platform, yep. I believe. You know, whether whether it's you explicitly plug into your Snowflake or you use like, or they just use Snowflake under the hood because mm. it's such a powerful system. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I'm like not financial advice, but Snowflake, <laughs> not, a, not a bad bet, I don't think. Well, Berkshire Hathaway agreed. <laughs> Did they put money into Snowflake? Uh, yeah, I think it was Todd bought into the IPO in a, in a pre-IPO round. Put okay. $500 million into the Snowflake's pre-IPO. Yeah. Seems like a safe bet. Could be the next Oracle. Yeah. Okay, I've got a question. Bring it back. Everything comes back to crypto, at least on this episode. So my very, very rough, not fully yet adequately informed thesis on things like Solana in the crypto world is the analogy I'm thinking about is like AWS and, and Snowflake. They're like Ethereum is AWS for crypto, basically. But there's going to be all sorts of specific use cases where sp- different protocols are going to do better. And projects will use both Ethereum and those. Like anybody who's using AWS or using Snowflake is probably also using AWS for various workloads and storage and stuff. Sure. Seems to I don't understand why crypto wouldn't be the same with protocols. What do yeah, that's what I've heard. There are, like, you have this fundamental trade-off of, like, security and cost. Like, yep. the more secure it's going to be, the more expensive it's going to be. And by secure, well, okay, I, I don't know if security is the word, but decentralized. Yeah. The more decentralized it is, the more expensive it's going to be. The if more, you, I don't know, maybe canonical? I don't know, whatever you want. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So, I, I mean, I'm not the best person to ask about this, but I, I think that's right. I think that's why there's so many chains. I mean, I always used to ask the question, like, to the Ethereum people, why can't you do this with Bitcoin side chains? Because mm-hmm. Bitcoin has this, like, low-level language. And I was always just like, well, shouldn't you be able to take the low-level Bitcoin language? I think it's Turing-complete. Like, yep. you know, you don't need much to have a Turing-complete language. Yep. So why can't you just take the Turing-complete language and then build, I think, a side chain is what it's called, yep. and make 
basically a version like, you know, you just build, you know, your Turing complete programming stuff on top of Bitcoin. And I would always get the answer that's just like, Bitcoin's just not built for that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, mm-hmm. you just could do that, but why would you? Like, right. Ethereum is made for that. Right. And so I think that extends into, as you're saying, basically, you know, you, you can, ha- you have domain specific blockchains. You want that. Yep. I think so. We'll see. It's also early. Like, it's, it's really early. It's so early. What engineering techniques and programming languages are being used in crypto mostly? Ethereum uses Solidity, right. which is kind of like JavaScript. I've heard it's pretty easy to learn. Would you be a Solidity developer outside of crypto? Like, Is that like a big language or a big skill set that people have? or is Solidity that... was invented for Ethereum. Ah, okay. Yeah. And I think... I think that most of the other blockchains are actually, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think they use Solidity or they use, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but, and or they use like an EVM compatible solution. So like the the Ethereum virtual machine. So they basically yep, run, yep. it's like you're running on Ethereum, but the way that the consensus works under, under the hood is different. It's under, yeah, interesting. I think I heard that some projects and chains are using rust maybe that wouldn't surprise me and that part of the appeal there is like hey you don't have to learn solidity we can access a whole big pool of developers but it's fascinating how like it's so easy for me to forget as like thinking about you know business models and the investing layer of the stack when you come back to crypto, it is something, an area of technology that's still so new. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the technical decisions matter a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. And by the way, like, so speaking of like the whole fractal nature of what we're doing, for roughly the first three to four years of software engineering daily, I felt like I could basically cover everything important in the world of software engineering. Like I could get, a, I mean, I am skin deep understanding in all of these areas but yep. i have a skin deep understanding you ask me about javascript i'll give you a skin deep understanding you ask me about crypto i'll give you a skin deep understanding you ask me about you know data infrastructure i'll give you a skin deep understanding but crypto has become so complicated yeah i can't even give you really a skin deep understanding like yeah. i see the projects i always go to like the the websites of the crypto firms and i look at what they're investing in and then i look at the like the white papers w- the white w- white paper or even just the website and i'm like i don't what is this <laughs> what the hell is this well the challenge is 80 percent of it it's nothing. <laughs> that may or may not be true, actually. Right, but it's hard to distinguish. Like, if you talk to crypto investors, like, they will give you justification. They'll be like, oh, yeah, it's a ZK snark thing. Like, I what? <laughs> I'm not fluent in it anymore. Yeah. And there are podcasters that are definitely doing a better job. Like, the Bankless. Have you heard the Bankless yeah, podcast? Yeah, Bankless. That's a great podcast. Yeah, Bankless is, I think they're, like, acquired for crypto, basically. <laughs> oh, what a compliment. <laughs> yeah. The other one I like is Uncommon Core. Haven't listened to that. Also really good. Is that the Three Arrows Capital guy? It might be. One of the two co-hosts is an investor, I think. Sue's? Yes. Okay, yes. yeah. They do a good job. But, yeah, it's also new. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. So when are you going to start minting NFTs of episodes? I have an idea about that offline, but Ooh, um, cool. <laughs> but on all seriousness, I don't know. I thought about it. Have you have you tried to do it? We have not tried. Of course, it's crossed our minds. You know, we have friends and collaborators who have done stuff like that. I don't know. It feels weird. Like, well, you know what it is. I wonder if it's an innovator's dilemma type thing, where 
we're probably not going to do it yeah. because we've got an established revenue model with oh, yeah. sponsorships. But if we were starting from scratch and we had no sponsorships, but we had an audience, why not? Why wouldn't we try it? I mean, the question is like, what's the difference between that and subscription? Like, is, right. it, is it really any? I mean, are you going to hang the episode on your wall? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like... I kind of get know. it. I kind of get it with the gifts or yeah. with like the JPEGs. Yeah. But the audio thing is weird. Like, you know, you welcome somebody into your mansion and you say, okay, and before we sit down to dinner, I'd like you to walk into the soundproof room and we're going to listen <laughs> to the acquired episode that I have the rights to. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> this is my listening room. Yeah. This is where you listen to my NFTs. <laughs> well, okay. So the one thing I have been thinking about that and we're not going to do anytime soon, but I think would be something we would do is if you take the rights aspect of it seriously, are there people or organizations out there who might want to, say, either commission an episode of Software Daily or Acquired or buy one, but then to have the rights to publish it wherever they want? So, like, we were imagining for Acquired, like, say you're a company that for whatever reason you would like to have an Acquired episode on your company, you might use that for recruiting. You might use it for fundraising. Sure. You might use it for whatever you want. Yeah. And you might want to publish it on your website. You might want to keep parts of it internal. You might want to use it for employee morale. Like, who knows? Yeah. If there were a marketplace to be able to do that, like, there's certainly some price at which Ben and I would go do a private acquired episode totally. for somebody. And then if we did that, we sure, like, we'd be happy to give them the rights and, like, have them use it wherever they want. Would an NFT make something like that possible? I mean, it's possible without an NFT, right? Right. That like, that's what we came back to, like, which was who like, is, as we were talking, who's about, at, like, they're never going to resell that, right? <laughs> like, they're never going to go to Christie's, right? Right. right. <laughs> or yeah, I don't know. People do things like maybe they would, but yeah, uh, maybe. I mean, that is like, what we came back to. We were like, as we were talking about, it, we we're like, wait a minute, wouldn't that just be a regular commissioned episode? <laughs> Unless you think it's going to be like you're the Andy Warhol of business podcasts <laughs> and even your advertising is going to get sold for millions of dollars oh in the God. future, then that would be amazing. It's probably not worth it. <laughs> Our egos haven't hit that point yet. <laughs> I mean, I think like, I think Joe Rogan NFTs would, would make sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, or Dan Carlin. Yeah. Or, you know, also I think it could make sense too, for like, there's so many niches and creators out there that are not in obviously monetizable, niches like we are in excellently monetizable niches but if you're uh you know i don't know make up something like oh even let's take true crime is a really popular i think it's the most popular podcast category i bet true crime podcasts you know the only way i can think of that you're going to monetize that is just through you know casper ads like you know you're just going to do mass market type stuff but they probably have really passionate audiences you know this is the whole theory behind patreon and the like is monetized directly but maybe an nft is is a way to monetize directly but just monetize the whales let that subsidize right 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 everybody else instead of instead of patreon or do both right like anybody who wants to pay five bucks a month great pay five bucks a month but if somebody wants to pay us, like if somebody is really rich and really loves us and wants to pay us a million dollars okay there should yeah. be a vehicle for that yeah yeah, I mean, it is ultimately patronage. Yeah, it is. Or at least NFTs as they've blown up so far. Yeah. I wonder what's going to become of all this young wealth. Like, the young wealth yeah. of crypto. Like, 
Like the FTX guy. The FTX guy, or like I heard an interview with Fedekoven, the guy who bought the Beeple, the guy who bought oh, the yeah. $72 million Beeple. He's just like younger than us. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> He's like 31 or something. Wow, we're the old guard now. I we're, love it. We're definitely the old guard. But yeah, I mean, he's just like an art connoisseur. He's like Beeple's first 100, 1,000 days or whatever it was. Like, that is an iconic piece. I needed to be a part of it. I'm a total true believer. Yeah. And I was just thinking like, this is such a sign of there is there is a nouveau riche. Yeah. There is a nouveau riche in the world. Like yeah. the crypto, the crypto I was hearing about this in Miami too. My my friend was telling me he's like, "Yeah, you know, I went to this party with a bunch of crypto millionaires the other night. It made me feel so stupid and so poor." <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting though. Like there is all of this wealth being created. Yeah, there's definitely going to be new culture that's going to emerge around it. Like this has always happened in history. Like anytime, you know, it used to be the founding of nations, right? Like America becomes a thing and then like people get rich in America because there's opportunity and then the whole world, you know, looks down on like, well, those nouveau riche Americans, you know, and then people were doing this with China after Deng Xiaoping opened it and there were, you know, people were getting rich in China. Like, oh my God, do you know, Chinese people are buying, you know, the, what was the thing they, they would buy like wine at auction and then blend it together and like can you believe that they're doing that you know like <laughs> I didn't know of course that. that was not all chinese people it was just like there were news reports about that like anyway but yeah this is, this is like yeah so it feels like now we're the guys on the porch being like can you believe that they're buying nfts with all this money <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and you just feel like a sucker like making an honest living <laughs> selling sponsorships on the pods yeah exactly oh it is great that i really like our business model yeah about you like yeah i mean it's so aligned yeah it works it's a hard-earned platform well i think we were we were lucky to start before it got really crowded yep and i mean i don't know about you like did you did you know it was gonna get i mean it's it's so weird because it like it's one of those things you it looks so obvious in retrospect like obviously this is no freaking idea this is too easy yeah it's too easy to do yeah no clue complete dumb luck that we ended up doing this It it was more like ben and i enjoyed chatting we thought it would be fun to do this we were like oh podcast it cool like let's do a podcast and but no strategy no play we didn't see it becoming this big how about about you the reason i I left my job at amazon to do it is because i there's another podcast called software engineering radio it's Uh, actually it's actually has a bigger listenership than my podcast they started like 10 years before they're the brain tree and you're the stripe i wouldn't say that (laughs) (laughs) i don't know about that was brain tree around when stripe started yeah brain tree so it's part of paypal now Braintree was a startup that I believe was started before Stripe. Although Stripe was started in 2009. It was a long time ago. I think Braintree was started before. Yeah, they were like 07, maybe I want to say. And then Braintree acquired Venmo. This is like the craziest quirk of history. Braintree acquired Venmo. It wasn't PayPal. It was was, was before. And then PayPal acquired Braintree. Yeah, so what happened was, like the story as I understand it, we had Andrew Cortino, one of the co-founders of Venmo on for a live show. Oh. Unfortunately, we like the audio got messed up, so it wasn't one of our best works. But if you want the whole story and you're willing to listen to bad audio, go back and listen to that from a few years ago. But so I think the story is Excel was the main VC in both Venmo and Braintree. And Venmo was taking off, getting all this usage, but they had no business model. And they were just like bleeding cash because right. there was no revenue and they were right. getting hit with energy, with ACH fees from the banks. So as it grew, just like they lost more and more money and they needed a save. Like they needed something to, obviously there was value there, but they needed something to do with it because the company was running out of money. So they called up Braintree, their other portfolio company. Like you guys are financial on the internet. Like, can you, 
can you bail us out here? (laughs) And then PayPal ended up acquiring the whole thing like a few months later. Yeah. I remember going to a Venmo party in when I was in college. It was like in 2013 or 2012 or 2011. It was just like downtown Austin, probably during South by Southwest. Probably. And it was just like, hey, there's this company called Venmo that's like hosting free drinks and food. Like, let's go. And all you have to do is download Venmo. (laughs) And I remember downloading it. I was like, what is this? Remember those days? We were all so innocent. (laughs) We were so innocent. Dude, it must have been awesome being at UT during South by. So actually, I barely went to South by. I, I mean, I'm the worst Austinite ever. Like, I'm the worst representative of Austin because I never went. To, I went to very few live music. I went been to one ACL. I never went to South by Southwest events. You know, I was not a big attendee. So now, though, you can go back. And... Now I go back, and I, I mean, I don't know. Austin is still an extrapolation of what it was in call in college. Mm. It's it's still it's, it's always going to be that moment in your life for you, or like. Well, okay, no. So as far as a tech scene, like the thing that I always used to say about about Austin, and I don't think this is true anymore. But maybe it was, ne- was never true to an extent. And I do not want to offend any Austinites out there because I absolutely love Austin. But relative to like San Francisco. Or like, you know, in terms of it, in terms of a tech scene, I always used to say Austin is where, where young people go to retire. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really, yeah, it's really yeah. offensive. No, 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 no. I don't, I, I, I don't think I mean I it anymore, but just like the work culture yeah. there was laid back. And if you want a laid back work culture, like Austin's a fantastic yeah. place. Yeah. Again, I don't think this is even true anymore. Yeah. I think well, now Seattle had this reputation for a long time too. It absolutely did. Like, especially after, not during the Microsoft's heyday, but after the doj handicapped microsoft and like they went through their decade-long fallow period yeah this was absolutely like oh like you see people move from san francisco to seattle it's like okay yeah they made a bunch of money they want to get the no state income tax yeah they're there to chill yeah like definitely not the case anymore no. but th- that was a knock for a long time so yeah. yeah i get it i get it and the lifestyle is great like in both places it is and it is okay do you think it's gonna be well we'll get to the question in a sec do you think it's gonna be different after covid but i think they're Absolutely. I felt one of the reasons that I moved here in 2017 was if you really wanted to be the best and you really wanted to hustle, like, and you worked in our industry, you had to come to San Francisco. Yeah, it's exactly. You right. know, you could justify being other, but you were just justifying, like, this is where it all was. What do you, what do you think now? What do you think going forward? Yeah. Moving target for me. Yeah. I mean, like, COVID was like a mesmerizing experience, right? And like once, when you're in COVID, it feels like it's never going to end. Yeah. Now it's starting to feel like things are actually, it is actually ending. You can go to dinner. And we can do stuff like this, which is amazing. We can do stuff amazing. like this, which is, which is amazing and only possible because we're st- in person. We're still here. So, and I like that. Yeah. And not everybody's left San Francisco. Maybe the loudest people on the internet, if you go on Twitter, it feels like everybody's left San Francisco. I'm not, Sure, if everybody's left San Francisco. Yeah, I don't think so. I know a lot of people who are still here. So the question is, like, a lot of what was cool about San Francisco for me used to be, like, everybody comes to town, even the people that live in the South Bay. Periodically, like, once a week at least, you know, everybody from South Bay is coming to the city. So if you want to schedule a meeting with somebody from the South Bay, you can just wait and they'll come to the city. Or you'll be going to South Bay and you can meet them in South Bay. My big worry with COVID was, like, nobody's going to move around anymore. Everybody's just going to be sitting in their home. At the same time, San Francisco still feels like a dilapidated ghost town right now. Yeah. So it's like you're walking. And Lord knows there are huge problems here. Like, really big problems. Really big problems. Um, 
that have sort of, I don't know, it's like COVID really unveiled them in a way, I don't know, a way that wasn't as resonant. Yeah. I mean, you're a runner. Did you used to run around San Francisco or do you still run around yeah, San Francisco? Yeah, used to and still do, although I'm not in as great shape and as I was pre-COVID, but I love running around all the Bay Area. That's one of the best parts about the Bay Area to me is in the city, in the South Bay, in Marin, in the East Bay, you can go for runs that are just world-class. And it's like, not a bummer at this point? You, st- you still feel I mean, fun? I miss doing it with people, but but no. Okay. Well, I used to run around downtown. Oh. And, like, uh, I would run down Market Street. Oh. And Ugh. that's become really gnarly. Yeah. I mean, it was always gnarly, but it's become more gnarly. I guess I just have to change my route. Oh, no. I do, like, Bernal and uh, Glen Park, Glen Canyon. Like, okay. All right. I guess that stuff hasn't changed. Yeah. No, those parts of the city. We live in Noe, and, like, it hasn't really changed. It hasn't changed at all. Yeah. I think part of the appeal of Noe is that, like, and Glen Park and Bernal is, like, it feels like you're living in Palo Alto, but you're living in San Francisco. Right. There was a an appeal, maybe this is what you're saying, to, like, no, I'm living in, like, downtown San Francisco. Yeah. And, like, yeah. Is that well, yeah, still yeah, that's, not? That's, I mean, that's where I've lived and it used to feel safer than it feels yeah. now. It used to feel like there like and yeah i mean like i'm probably used to feel like yeah like i'm in the middle of the universe like yeah this is like amazing yeah, yeah. but it was you know hustling and bustling but now it's like you know van ness is like under construction forever yeah. and, and and there's you're under it's under construction i think it'll depend on like what are the big companies do? like what does stripe do aren't they like leaving their headquarters that they just built yeah <laughs> they built that new headquarters and they now have space in south san francisco uh-huh. i think yeah I think it's impossible to predict at this point, to yeah. be honest. Like, I've heard mixed review. Like, I was just talking to a CEO who said that he was polling his office, and they polled the office at the beginning of the pandemic and said, like, do you want a physical office to go back to? And it used to be, like, 70% said yes, and now it's only, like, 30% or 20%. Interesting. Um, but, you know, we'll see what actually happens. And, you like, you know, you have Amazon saying people have to go back to work in the office. Yeah. I think Google's saying the same thing, or they've backpedaled a little bit. Yeah. You know, I'm sure... The management of these companies, the, the you know the executive management, would love to have you know people still coming back to the HQ to work because you you know you get so much more yeah. out of your employees yeah, if, if you totally. if you can enforce that. But you know we may have gone through a one way door. A one way door. Yeah. About you know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how it's going to play out. It's going to be like I would never go back to an office. I can, yeah, oh, I can no, never me, work yeah. in the office. <laughs> totally. Point. You used to drive to the office in Madrona, right? Like, Oh, yeah. It was, you know, well, also just like our careers and what we do is just so, so not, <laughs> you know, I sound like a broken record, I'm sure, but like, it's just like our careers are on the internet. Like, there's no reason to, you know what my dream is? I would love to realize in the next few years. I think we're, the question we're wrestling with on this is like, do we stay, how long do we stay in the city or do we move to the suburbs my my wife's family's from marin her family's all in marin and marin's such a great place we'll probably do that at some point but my dream is i would love to have like a house and then in the backyard a studio like actually my my very specific role model is michael lewis and his family it's just amazing they live in berkeley they've got a like a compound with i think i think they have four properties on the compound so there's like the main house and then he and his wife each have a cottage studio oh wow his wife's tabitha soren who was the mtv vj and now she's an artist so she has a studio artist and he has okay. his like writing and then they have like a guest cottage and that sounds amazing to me that so, sounds pretty cool yeah you get the separate physical spaces like so you have do, your office does he do his podcast out of there i or just he does so. writing there i think well i know he does writing i don't know where he records the pod but that just seems like the dream to me for sure <laughs> like 
the commute is I walk across the yard. <laughs> right. And then I'm in a separate space, which is like set up for the work I do. And then at the end of the day, like I walk back into my house. That sounds but then, amazing. I mean, the question there is like, you don't want to be living the COVID life for the rest of your life, right? right. Like you want socialization and i assume you don't want it to be relegated to like conferences so are you going yeah. to synagogue like <laughs> what are you doing well this I was, is like hey, i was thinking about this during COVID. i was like am i gonna have to start going to synagogue because yes. i can't live this way <laughs> amazing amazing uh COVID was great for judaism <laughs> so this is why i think michael lewis has it figured out when they he talks about this they moved to berkeley i don't know where tabitha's from he's from new orleans they moved to Berkeley because they went through the press and they were like, where can we live and have the lifestyle we want, but also have access within driving distance to the best stories that he could write about in the world. And they're like, Berkeley is great. So like, you can have that lifestyle, but you're in the Bay Area. You can go to cross the bridge to San Francisco. You can go to the South Bay. So I think, I think that's like. So he just meets with people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think if you live in the Bay Area, my hope is you can still get the, right. the I guess best if, of all worlds. If you're Michael too. Lewis, you get invited to dinner parties and stuff and that's totally, your socialization. Right. Well, and also, I, I don't, I don't think it's hard from Berkeley. I got plenty of friends that live in the East Bay. Yeah, I don't think it's hard to drive across the bridge, hang out, yeah, do whatever. I mean, I guess this is what I'm really saying. Like during COVID, I started to feel like I didn't have any friends. I was like, I don't uh, have any. Friends. I'm not spending. I'm not hanging out with anybody. But I just like, I, like my brain didn't realize it was because it's a pandemic. <laughs> like that's why I'm not hanging out with yeah. anybody. It like some lower level part of my brain felt like I was being ostracized and like uh, I didn't have any friends. And, like, this was how it was going to be for the rest of my life. But, like, we're starting to come out of it now. I'm starting to realize, like, we're hanging out. Like, I, you know, hung out with a few other people last last couple of weeks. I'm like, I have friends. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can socialize. Yeah, totally. Do you do profanity on? I know what you're going to say. Go ahead and say it. It's fine. What a mind fuck, yeah. man. Like, yeah. <laughs> I always ask, like, we try to not do profanity on Acquired. But whenever, if we have a guest who does, we're like, fine. You know? But yeah, what a mind fuck. I think it's well-deserved. Even children listening to this should know. <laughs> yeah. should, should know that that was what uh, COVID was. You know what's going to be crazy is, like, all the kids. My wife and I are expecting a daughter in October. We're oh, congrats. very excited. Congrats. Uh, She's going to have no idea. Like, she was, like, conceived and Jenny has been pregnant during this thing. <laughs> She's going to have no idea. I mean, that's great. I'm so happy for her. But, like... Like, this is a Great Depression-level event, right? For our lives. I think so. Hopefully not with as... Well, I have different types of suffering. But I think so, right? Like... But does it have... Is there an equivalent, like, the whole, you know, people who live through the Depression can't like they can't spend money. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, what what are our neuroses going to be? Is there some neurosis? Yeah. Neurosis. I mean, it definitely feels to me, I don't know about you, but like I used to think nine 11 was this in our lives, but the pandemic feels like infinitely bigger than oh, yeah. 11. Yeah. 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 What are we going to be worried about? I wonder if maybe we'll worry that like something like this is going to happen again, even though, yeah, it may or may not, but like, we're probably going to be better equipped to deal with it when it does. I don't know. What do you think? I think I'll be more cautious. I mean, so it's like Black Swan. Like, you know, even 9-11 for me was basically in the distance. Like, yeah. it didn't really affect me at a visceral level. Yep. But, yeah, Black Swan. Yeah. I mean, no doubt it affected everybody. This has been a blast. It's, yeah, it's been really, really fun. So um, fun. I'm glad we are back. Congrats on this studio setup you've got. This is great. Yeah, I mean... 
thanks to Pure Mind. That's that's where we're we're recording. You know, hopefully someday I'll have my own thing. Your backyard studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would I would like to have the same thing. If you ever did go back to Austin, you could have a pretty sick setup there. I Definitely, bet. I'll never go back to Austin though. Too hot. The culture. Uh, I spent 23 years of my life there. You know, I don't know. I'm. Uh, I think it's. I mean, unless it changes enough, I I want to. Maybe I'll I'll mature and I'll change my mind. But I I think I'm a big city a big city guy. That makes sense. It's hard to like. Yeah, I would never. I can't imagine myself going back to where I grew up. Why is that? Psychological issues. I grew up in a fairly small town in Pennsylvania. Not like super small, but like it's just very different than San Francisco. But I think also just psychologically, like every time I go back there, I'm just flooded with all this like who I was in middle school and exactly. high school. That's, and, yeah. If I'm being honest, that's what it is. Yeah. I, I need to escape that for, yeah. for good. I'm yeah. done, done with that person. Yeah. You just like, you don't want to be that person anymore. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Right. Well, let's wrap it. Great spot to end on. Yep. It was a blast. It was a blast.